Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship's Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Teacher Paul Francisco. Join us as we are appointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's Holy Word. Praise God. Good morning, Grace Bible Fellowship. It's so good to see all of you, and, and some of you I've missed, so it's really good to see some of you guys here. Praise the Lord that you're here this morning. Um, I'm incredibly happy this morning, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, for those of you who know that I got sick over the holidays, and pretty sick, but then afterwards, after I recovered, I lost my voice. And then this morning, I was able to sing with you guys, and it was glorious to be able to hear a voice come out of my own body. So praise the Lord for that. It is a joy to be with you today. Um, we have had an, an incredible time, at, at least for me, in the study and preparation of the book of Esther. Uh, we have about two more weeks that we'll be in the book of Esther, and then I will be doing a four to five uh, series of sermons on our church covenant. Uh, from various different texts, which if you go to our church covenant and, um, and and read through it there, I think we have scripture references in there, and I'll probably be picking several of those texts for, for in the references, and just kind of why, why do we have a church covenant? Why do we say what we say and the heart behind it? And just to, to help us all um, both know... Um, the spirit behind it, but also to, to, to apply it in our lives as we are uh, uh, been given a gift to be a church uh, of Jesus Christ. And then I think I feel convinced after several have shared with me, um, we'll actually go back to the New Testament. And uh, it looks like the Lord's leading us to go down a very long road of Romans. So we'll probably be in it for the rest of the year because Romans is one of those types of books. So, uh, but but I, I praise God for His uh, word. And then this morning, um, as we prepared to look at Esther chapter eight, um, I wanted to share with you this past Wednesday we had a, a great uh, discussion on chapter seven, uh, part of our care group, and I love the insight that I gained from uh, a dear brother here. Um, and like Haman, Satan is constructing these gallows throughout all human history with these devices uh, to lead people astray to attempt to destroy God's people. Meanwhile, God in his providence is bringing about his providential plan of reversal, which will ultimately see Satan, just like Haman, hung on all his gallows. And I think through the example of Esther, we can see that God desires that we would have love and compassion for others who are perishing in this lost and dying world with the hope of the gospel. And so that is um, my goal for you guys to see that in today's text. So in some ways, it's a very evangelistic type application i think that we can take from here but as a means of recapping because you know for those of you who've been out and everything it, it's important because we what we've seen is the story in the book of esther in chapter one the opening scene of king Aswaris 
uh, attempting to display his own glory as the ruler over the um, the Persian Empire, as we saw in the text right here, 127 provinces. And so he was like, look at all my riches. Look at all my glory. And, of course, we know after the six-month party he threw, he threw a seven-day party right afterwards for everybody just in the city. And at the end of those seven days, he called for his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, to come uh, because she was, as I think we saw in the text, his prized possession and of course she didn't come and so he was embarrassed and he took the advice of his uh, foolish advisors to put her away and to find a new queen uh, then years passed and Esther is taken into the royal palace amongst all these virgin women and they went through a beautification process of 12 months and all these things just to please the king, to look a certain way, to smell a certain way. And of course, the king brought shame to all these virgins who weren't chosen. But God in his providence used Esther, and she found favor in the eyes of everyone she came through, and she was chosen to be the next queen. And then in chapter 3, what we saw is Mordecai, working at the king's gate, uncovered a plot between two of the eunuchs of the kings who were devising a plan to kill the king. And so he did the righteous thing, shared with Esther, who were in turn shared with the king. And the king, after investigation, saw that it was true, and they were hanged on the gallows. And then, thinking that Mordecai would be honored for his, his service to the king to save the king's life, instead what the king did is he took a pen and recorded in his book of Chronicles before them. And then we see chapter 4 where the king promotes, and I think you, if you pay close attention to, as the text today, uh, twice it's mentioned, or I think, think three times it's mentioned, Haman the Agagite. Uh, I spoke about this before, but ultimately it is meant, the author was meant to tell us that Haman was an enemy of God's people. And so Haman was promoted by the king to second in command. He was the most power, powerful man in all of the province of Persia. Next to the king, he can pretty much do whatever he wanted. And then this enemy of God's people, Haman, who was also full of himself, wanted to be honored. And when he discovered that Mordecai didn't bow down before him. It infuriated him. It infuriated him to the point where he spent a whole year of his life figuring out how to take vengeance upon Mordecai. And he gets this uh, edict issued in the king's name through manipulation to essentially set the death date, the 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 genocide of all the Jews in all the provinces. So in chapter 4, there's this great scene of lament. Mordecai is in anguish. He rips his clothes and wears sackcloth, and there is great weeping within the city of the citadel and all the Jews for the upcoming execution of the Jews. And so he goes and has Esther's advisor tell her of, as she inquires about what is going on and he, to exhort her to do something about it. But Esther, at first, 
is a little bit hesitant. Hey, who am I? And if I go before the king, I could lose my life. And I think those words that were said to Esther, I think we see some uh, providential plan rolling out here in the end of the book of Esther where he says to Esther, for who knows as a such a time as this that you were appointed to be there. And right before that, he, he tells her, hey, look, you know, you and your, you can do nothing. You and your household will perish. But if God will rise up from some other place to bring salvation. So she goes and enacts uh, this action and tells um, Mordecai and all the people to, to fast and pray. And so after three days of fasting and prayer, she comes up with a plan in chapter 5 that she's bringing to fruition. Likewise, Haman has a plan. So we see this tale of two plans. And Esther, after this time of fasting, goes before the king, and by God's grace she is given favor in his eyes, and the king holds out the golden scepter and allows her to speak. But uh, very wisely, she doesn't say anything at that moment, but invites the king to a great feast and asks that Haman would come to this feast. And so she has this two-feast plan, because even after the first feast, when the king says, what is it, Esther? You know, to half of the kingdom I will give you. She asked for another feast. And so uh, Haman's feeling real good about himself at this point. He, and, you know, feeling really great. You know, he just ate and feasted with the king and the queen. Uh, and um, on his way home, he sees Mordecai. And he remembers his anger towards Mordecai. And then... So at his home were family and friends. He, look at what all I've done. Look at all my wealth. Well, like, much like the king. Uh, but even his own family, the sons he has, he says none of them means anything to me so long as Mordecai is alive. And so he takes the foolish advice of friends and family and constructs a gallow out in the front of his home with this plan to go petition before the king to have his enemy in his mind Mordecai hung from there but then we go to chapter 6 this providential I said peripety right great reversal through ordinary means a series of events takes place and that night little did the Haman and Esther know that the king would have this providential night of insomnia and in the midst of wanting to go to sleep he has one of his servants read this great big boring book of chronicles to him and just like the odds of winning the lottery is like one in a million um it so happens that the book is read and what was recorded about mordecai saving his life is revealed and then he asks the servant what has been done for mordecai and he tells him nothing so he's like, who's out in the courtyard? Well, Haman, you know, bright and early, ready to enact his plan. He's there first thing in the morning. And, and, and he says, well, bring Haman in. And then he asks Haman the question, what should I do for the one whom the king decides to delight in? And Haman, full of himself, says, oh, who else would the king not want to delight in other than me? So he tells him about this great honor of 
bringing him in the royal robes and going through the city and giving praise to his name. And then much to his discouragement, he finds out as the king says, okay, do so for Mordecai, you go do this. So he's greatly embarrassed by this. He's infuriated. He's having to take the man he wanted killed to go through the street and give praises and glory to his name. So he goes home very quickly. He's, he's just lamenting over the fact that Mordecai has just been praised. And he goes before his family and he's upset. And rightfully, they tell him, well, the king is set to honor Mordecai. Who are you? You're not going to be able to do anything. It's, it's going to be to your downfall. And then, without time to think about, and this all happens within a 24-hour period, they come, the servants come to get Haman to go to this feast, the second feast. And in chapter 8, as we saw last week, we see that the, the favor of the king is towards Esther and Mordecai. And again, the king asked uh, what her request was. And in a godly confrontation, she exposes Haman. The king is furiated. Furiated to the point that he gets up from drinking wine and he, he has no words. He's been betrayed for the man he's been trusted. He walks out and of course the king, who hasn't been able to make any decision on his own, obviously was consulting with someone because while he's got, he comes back with his servants and he sees Haman falling before Esther, who by protocol was not even to come near her. He says, who are you? You would even assault the queen in my presence? And then the servant says, hey, yeah, yeah, that, that, you know, Haman has this, this, this gallow that he was going to kill Mordecai about. And the king says, as they cover his head and take him out of there, just go ahead and hang him on it. So that we see the great reversal taking place in, in Haman is hung from the very gallows that he constructed for the device of destruction of God's people. What a great reversal that is and so here we are now in chapter 8 we see what happens the favor of the king towards Esther and Mordecai and today's message a plea for deliverance I have and you can look up here if you like to take notes that Esther is advocating for others and what you'll see through verses 1 through 6 that there is no contentment in her self-gain. No contentment in self-gain. Even though Esther receives a reward and Mordecai's promotion comes with a responsibility. And then we see in verses 7-14 that the king gives a response. And we'll look at that more in detail. And that response though, what we see is the king is lacking. He's lacking compassion. He's lacking care for for the Jews, the only thing he actually cares about is his own name, and he so happens to, to love Esther. But he grants a wish to them, and what we see is Mordecai puts into action a new edict, a new edict that would ultimately be the reversal of the first edict of Haman, the Agagite, would be the reversal of the enemy God's people. And then we'll look at it from a hermeneutical standpoint of what we can learn from this. The, the biblical principles and how God works on behalf of his people. So, we'll look now 
in verses 1 through 6, and I think of the great hymn, the great hymn written by Horatio Spafford. You guys remember the song, the hymn, It Is Well? It Is Well? See, if you look at the lyrics very carefully considering the way it can weigh deep into our souls. However, when you learn the story of how and why it was written, it only leaves you with this peace that comes only from God that he does in us through Jesus Christ. You see, Mr. Spafford wrote this hymn after his wife's wife and daughters were sailing to, to meet him. The, the ship had sank in a matter of about 12 minutes in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And his four daughters went down with the ship and they drowned and only his wife Anna had survived. Later, she had a telegram sent to inform Horatio with this message. Saved alone, what shall I do? Can you imagine what that felt like in the moment of reading it for Horatio? Can you imagine poor Anna who could not save her own daughters from drowning? And upon sailing to rejoin his beloved wife after this great tragedy coming back from Europe to Americas, he sh stood on the ship's deck for hours upon hours staring out at the ocean until one point where he had passed by the place his daughters had drowned. And an author recording the events of Spafford's life stated, at that moment the Lord had given him a special measure of grace and peace, leading him to write the words in this hymn, When sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul makes you wonder how Anna felt with the difficulty of sending that message saved alone. I share this with you because at the beginning of chapter 8 of Esther, we find ourselves wondering whether saved alone will be all that Esther can say as well. Will she have to report, I was rescued but not the rest of my people? Let me ask you a question, beloved. Have you ever received a gift on a special occasion like your birthday and it wasn't quite what you hoped for? You see, after Esther had fasted for days, she made a plan and went before the king. She found favor in his eyes. She had prepared two meals and confronted her enemy. And in that last meal for Haman, Esther saw his demise. Her enemy was now gone, but she had not forgotten what she had asked for. Esther's whole purpose in seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting was not merely so she could have the courage and wisdom to approach the king, although it was extremely uh, commendable that her being a young girl who was probably a late teenager or a young 20-year-old when she was married to the king, she humbled herself. I swear it wasn't simply her husband, but he was the king. And in humility, she spoke with wisdom and made her request known. But what was her full request? That her and her people would be spared from the pending 
death sentence of the edict written by Haman. And unlike that unexpected gift that didn't quite meet the wish, Asuerus grants her Haman's household. Look in the text. It says, on that day that King Asuerus gave to the Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, in the midst of this, Esther did not want to be saved alone. After the epic events of the feast and the destruction of her enemy, it would be Haman's possessions taken. And as the text states, Mordecai came into the presence of the king after Esther revealed who he was. Of course, the king, knowing Mordecai saved his life and it being fresh on his mind, desired to reward him by giving him the signet ring. You can almost imagine this ring still being warm, having just left the hand of Haman's finger. Then Esther appoints Mordecai over the house of Haman. This means Haman's property, his slaves, his money, and even his family. However, there was something Esther really wanted more than Haman's house. What she desired most, what she was willing to put her life on the line again, much like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, Esther had unceasing anguish at the thought of her people perishing. Therefore, she pleads with the king for their preservation. Verse 3, And Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that had devised against the Jews when the king held the golden scepter to Esther. Esther rose and stood before the king. You see, Esther did not want to be saved alone. Despite the relief Esther must have felt when Haman was removed as a threat against her and her people, the fate of her people was still a pending reality. You see, an edict written in the king's name could not be revoked. Esther was not distracted, though, nor would she be deterred from seeking their rescue. She exercised a godly perseverance in seeing her request being fulfilled. So she addressed the king once more. And her passion was evident here as well. The burden she had for her people could not be hidden from her mind, nor would she attempt to conceal this matter. Esther fell down before the king in tears at the feet of Asuerus. The depth of Esther's emotions was on display before him. And this should cause us to evaluate evaluate our own motives emotions saints you see christian when we make our petitions before the lord i ask you do we cast off all the restraints despite even if anyone is around and let our quest request be known you see our lord has never commanded us nor requested our feelings to be concealed in fact, it is a good thing to be transparent in our expressions of sincerity when pleading through our advocate Christ on behalf of a loved one to be healed, perhaps. 
or pleading before the Lord through Christ to save our marriage. Or about repentance of our sin. These are good, godly things to plead before the Lord in. And I can recount many times throughout my adult life saying goodbye to those in our church family in different churches. I think of the Sheep family. And I know some of you have already visited them. For a family like theirs who served faithfully in the church for over 15 years, we should be moved to love and emotion over their departure. You see, Esther demonstrated her passion and perseverance in her pleading. She was literally begging for the lies of her people, interceding on their behalf, making her requests known in total fullness towards the king. Nothing was hidden. Esther's heart was heartbroken in her pleading to stop Haman's death plan. There was nothing cold or distant or reserved in Esther. She was not ashamed to beg or plead with the king. Her death may have been averted once again. Asuerus' extension of the scepter gives her favor to speak, and there was no contentment in her own personal self-gain. But how would the king respond to her request? What would the king say? Let's look in verse 7. Then King Aswera said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him in the, on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, for and any written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, ring cannot be revoked. How did the king respond, I ask you? You see, Asuerus' response reveals his own contentment. He at least had partial sympathy in the, in the fact that he loved Esther. He had killed Haman and given his house over to her. I think what the king reveals here is that he believed his part was done. And his own wrath was already satisfied. It was as if the king felt good about what he had already done already. He's ready at this point to shift back into his passivity. Although the king would not do anything on his own accord, he did, however, give permission to Esther and Mordecai to do something. They were granted the ability to write another edict with the king's signet ring. You see, the king's response also reveals his lack of compassion. Esther just poured out her heart before him on behalf of the Jews, but Aswares tended to do what whatever was most advantageous to him, not what was morally right, because the genocide of an entire whole human race was on the line. He showed more care about Esther rather than the Jews themselves. His allowing of an edict demonstrated his feelings toward her alone. He had no particular concern for the Jews. 
Praise God that Christ did not have to convince the Father to care for us. You see, Christian, it was already set in the Father's heart. And for us saints, for Him to send His Son displayed His care for us. Now, since any edict sealed by the king could not be reversed or revoked, a new edict was needed in its creation. Look at verse 9. It says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Saban, on the 23rd day. An edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Aswares and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift Horses that were used in king's service bred from the royal stud. Now, with this edict, there was an opportunity. What do you think that opportunity was? I mean, there wasn't a reversal saying that they could harm the Jews and kill the Jews. No, but this edict now gave an opportunity for them to defend themselves. This new edict written by Mordecai allowed the Jews to see hope. Because the Jews still faced an uncertain outcome, but at least now their resistance would not be interpreted as rebellion. See, Mordecai played right into God's providential reversal here. His writing of the edict in the same fashion that Haman did. You see, the edict was transcribed into every language within the Persian Empire. was being delivered in every province as quickly as possible. In verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. To even destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. You notice those same words? To kill, destroy, and annihilate? Those were the same words that were meant for the Jews when Haman wrote his edict. Now Mordecai, being used by God, uses the same words to defend their own lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, including children and women and the plunder of their goods. You see, the providential plan of God was progressing forward. The great reversal was being put into motion. The Jews were being allowed to defend themselves from the upcoming death. They were given the right to not only protect their lives, but were permitted to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any who came against them. No armed force or people who attacked were safe to include their families, and instead of their goods being plundered after death, they now could do the same towards their enemies. And now the great reversal date would be set. Look in verse 12. It said, On that day, throughout all the provinces of King Aswares, on the 13th day of the 12th month, so December 13th, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. 
so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. The decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So that would be like equivalent of the law being issued in Britain, in Washington, D.C., and then like some like FedExed overnight to all the states, right? To all the, the, the governors and officials. And the author lets us see something here. The horses. See, throughout the land, the satraps, satraps, governors and officials were to receive this delivery. And they were being carried by horses that were royal in nature and bred by these special swift horses. This would be equivalent to our race horses of the day. I think if Mordecai could, he would have used in our day and age Amazon Prime or FedEx overnight, right? He would next day delivery. And for God's chosen people, for them, how beautiful were the horses or the hooves delivering this message, the edict. These horses carried the message of hope to the Jews. As uh, one commentator contrasts Esther chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 and Esther chapter 8 verses 15 through 17, he, he reminded us about Isaiah 61.3. And you can turn there if you want. I'll just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3. It says, Grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see, the author of Esther describes the reaction of God's people in verse 15 on. It says that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in these royal robes of blue and white and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen, linen and purple in the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. What a great reversal from ashes and sackcloth that was. The Jews, in verse 16, had light and gladness. Light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was a gladness and joy among the jews a feast and a holiday and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves jews for fear of the jews had fallen on them see afterwards mordecai leaves the king's presence wearing fine royal robes in splendid color and with a golden crown sitting on his head and the city of Susa reacts. The author notes that there shouts of rejoicing with a special countenance. The text says they had light and gladness and joy and honor. This is a picture of death turned into life and mourning turn into dancing and there was gladness and joy and honor and so much so that this led to many feasts of celebration like of a holiday this was seen throughout every province in every city and there was fear was replaced with feasting the fear of their upcoming 
death sentence was replaced with feasting. While for others, the text tells us their feasting turned into fear. So much so that they declared themselves a Jew. Wow, what a turning of events this was. A great and grand providential reversal was coming into full fruition. So there we have the king's response and Mordecai's action. But what can we learn from this story, I ask you? What can we learn from here? I want to offer five things that we can learn from this passage. So if you like to write things down, you can write these five things down. Let us not be so content with our own salvation that we lack compassion for those without it. Or you can even just put down, let us not be content in self. Secondly, let us persevere in pleading to the Lord for others to come to salvation or grow in their walk with God. Let us persevere in our pleading for others. Okay. Thirdly, let us announce the good news for the joy of all peoples. Let us announce the good news, brothers and sisters in Christ. Fourthly, let us always remember our position of victory and our participation in the battle. The call to mind, let us remember. Let us remember. Fifthly, let our discipleship be our voice. And I'll explain this further. So let's look at that first thing I want to offer us. Let us not be content in self. You see, Esther was not content with being saved alone. She was not concerned with her own survival. May God use her being reconciled to Him as a means of advancing the gospel. Do you have genuine concern for non-Christians? You see, with the world's population at approximately 7.9 billion people in the face of this earth, there is according to statistics, only 2.3 billion classified as Christians. And that includes Catholics and Mormons and all that. So really, it's much less than that. There are approximately 6,825 unreached people groups that still exist. So in missiological circles, they would understand that to be like the city of El Paso being less than 2% the population actually being born again Christians. And they are perishing without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Let me ask you something, Christian. Does that sit well with your soul? Does that sit well with you? I think of Jim Elliott, who he and his friends and families left to to Ecuador to go minister to or share the gospel to these native tribes in the jungles of Ecuador, and where they were so deeply burdened for these Indonesian peoples to know Christ, these same people who were a savage people, who regularly speared one another. And Jim Elliott lost his life with all those men on one account. But yet, later his wife Elizabeth and family, along with Nate Saint's family, stayed behind while everybody returned to the States. They stayed behind and they were able to reach their first converts for the sake of Christ. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. Being a witness to your father along with all his friends, all being killed for the sake of Christ and staying behind to reach a hostile people to continue to work. Now that's a burden of love for people, wouldn't you say? You know, William Carey became a foreign missionary coming from a reformed circle or tradition like our church. And many from his tradition tried to convince him that if God wanted them saved, then he would do it without our help. William Carey later wrote an inquiry in rebuttal to these objections, and he wrote this. He said, Our blessed Lord has required us to pray that His kingdom may come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It becomes us not only to express our desires of that event by words, but to use every lawful method to spread the knowledge of His name. In order for this, it is necessary that we should become in some measure acquainted with the religious state of the world. And this is an object we should be prompted to pursue not only by the gospel of our Redeemer, but even by the feelings of humanity. So an inclination to conscientiously act, he says activity therein, in other words, consciously act on, would form one of the strongest proofs that we are the subjects of grace and partakers of that spirit of universal benevolence and general, genuine uh, philanthropy, that's a big word, you can look it up, which appears so eminent in the character of God himself. Esther had great anguish over her fellow Jews who would be perishing. She demonstrated the same zeal the Apostle Paul did when he wrote Romans chapter 9, verses 1-3. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ that I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me. It's like Apostle Paul was weeping, speaking, urging, proclaiming. He says, bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He could feel the pain in his heart as he pens these words inspired by the Spirit. And he says, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now that's apostolic passion and love for a people. Paul was willing to trade his own salvation for his kinsmen. His sorrow and anguish over their spiritual state was unceasing. We can have a concern for those who are perishing. But often, something else captures our attention. And our regard can be fleeing. You see, both Esther and Paul wept. They wept for those who needed deliverance. Let me ask you, Christian, do you weep for those who need to be delivered? May our attitude never be so chill on evangelism and missions where we say, I'm good. My salvation is enough. If you lack compassion and passion for the lost, plead before Christ to help you feel the same compassion that He did for you. Secondly, let us persevere in pleading for others. Just as Esther persevered in her pleading before the king, let us be challenged. Let us be challenged to keep praying, pleading, and prevailing. 
to the advocate before the Father through Christ for the lost. Keep asking the Lord of harvest to send out workers in his harvest. Let us pray not just passionately for people to come to Christ, but let us pray for their sanctification and growing in holiness. Let us pray like the Apostle Paul did for the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. I'll read that for you. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sin. Let us persevere in our pleading for others. Let us announce the good news for the joy of all peoples. The proclamation written by Mordecai was read everywhere and it was leading them to joy. Their joy came from the right to defend themselves, but how much more joy will come from announcing the good news of the gospel? Beloved, a victory that is possible because the war has already been won. Let us faithfully proclaim the good news for the sake of Christ Jesus and not not be so easily caught up in the world of darkness. William Carey, later in his letter, continues to write this. Listen, listen to how he writes this. He says, Since the apostolic age, many other attempts to spread the gospel have been made, which have been considerably successful. But a considerable part of mankind are still involved in all the darkness of, of heathenism. Some are inconsiderable in comparison of, my, of what might be done of the whole body of Christ. Christians entered hardly in the spirit of the divine command on this subject. Some think little about it. Others are acquainted with the state of the world and and others love their wealth better than the souls of their fellow creatures. Let that not be true of us, beloved. Let us remember. Let us remember the Jews celebrating and hearing that they can fight for victory, but how much more should rejoicing be knowing that Christ has won our battle? It has implications for our celebration. Our hope is certain. Christ has broken the power of our enemies. Christ's victory has also implications for our sanctification. We do not fight from a defeated position, but we fight from a delivered one. We're not just hoping things will turn out for our good, but we know they will. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes in chapter 8, verse 1 through 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who not walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, but those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So remember that who we are positionally, we are, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Christ Jesus. We are positionally justified if we are in Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors in Christ. And Satan can never snatch us from the hand of God. Amen? Let our discipleship be great. You see, the author notes after the edict was delivered, many declared themselves a Jew. Were these declarations genuine? Only God knows. Were the ethnic groups in Persia just switching to be on the winning team, but without a heart transformation? Again, we can't be certain. God can. But it is my prayer that our discipleship is not just a profession, but it is a practice of the heart. I've been part of a denomination that boasts the largest professions, but so many cannot be found in the church. I pray this is not true of us. This is why we don't come here and turn down the lights low and play a soft music and play upon your emotions just so we can get people to walk a lot aisle or make a decision or pray or prayer and declare you righteous when we cannot do that. Only God can do that. Friends, if God is dealing with you, I pray that he deals with you until you are miserable without surrendering to Christ. You see, a loss to your own will is a victory in Christ that will bring about eternal effects. Until the day that we meet our Lord face to face and declared righteous by the cleansing blood of Jesus. You see, the book of Esther, although no mention of God is in the entire story, tells us the story of a reversal and redemption for a people in His providence. In the book, beginning of the book we learn about the 127 provinces under the king and we hear nothing of the jews but now two of the most powerful people in all of the kingdom are jews only the lord administers the power and placement of people god places people in positions of power but he also places enemies into position just as jesus told pilate you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above Take a moment just to bask in, in God's omnipotence and sovereignty. In other words, God's all-knowing and all-ruling power. We can just be encouraged knowing that no matter who is in authority over us, the Lord brings kings to rise and to fall, putting people into position. Esther was a, an advocate and a mediator for her people, but Jesus is a better mediator his role as an intercessor is a delight and joy for him. Esther barely gained access to the king, to the king, but Christ gives us direct access to 
to the Father. You see, the veil, the curtain has been removed and we can enter the Holy of Holies. Asuerus was indifferent to who lived and died except for Esther. Nothing would have been done for the Jews had not been for her. However, God is in no need of convincing and doesn't contemplate our salvation. He is actively working to complete our full salvation. He come, we come to Jesus because the Father gives us to Him and God's love transforms us as Loudon comments, the picture of Mordecai walking through the town in his splendid new robes cannot contrast any more starkly than with the earlier image of Mordecai wearing sackcloth and mourning at the king's gate. You see, in a more dramatic fashion, God's love transforms us. He comes to us when we are dead in our trespasses and he makes us alive in Christ. Mordecai's transformation in ours comes from, one, from another. You see, the eternal blessing for us is the transforming power of future glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christian, we must remember that the gospel is for all peoples. Christ is infinitely merciful in the work of our salvation, but let us not forget to advocate, to plead, and be willing to extend the gospel to others. Trust in Christ's work on the cross that brought about the reversal of our condemnation and transferred it, transformed it into salvation and future glory. Friends, if you're here today, let me just remind you the wrath of God is real. On this side of the cross, do you know if you will be spared God's wrath? Hopefully you can say like our brother did in his testimony. Apart from Christ, you're an enemy of God and you will not be spared his wrath. But friends, if you come to Jesus, if you repent and believe and you come to Jesus, you will experience the great reversal of eternal life. And as we end our time, we can go back to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. The Greek word here is a judicial stamped, done, gavel drop for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not be by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God's wrath was fulfilled in them. Who would walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that set it on the flesh is hostile to God. 
In other words, enemies of God. For it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So beloved, I pray this morning that you walk in the Spirit. That you are not in the flesh, that you are one of His. And the glorious hope that we have in the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ will richly bless you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word and your truth that you did reverse our path straight to hell and took us to the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel, opened up our hearts to know who you are so that we can live a life according to the Spirit, therefore glorifying you and not be righteous of our own doing, but righteous because of the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Thank you for who you are and what you're causing us to become. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 10.30 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near UTEP. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.